Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 155. Today, my guest is Ben Waitley, co-founder of Memrise, an online language tutoring site. Ben has a master's in experimental psychology from Oxford, where he focused on neural networks and computational modeling of human learning, and has spent the last 15 years looking at ways to learn and teach languages. Building on his neuroscience and language acquisition background, Ben pioneered the use of large language models to create the world's first AI language partner using GPT-3 technology, MemBot. He is also a prolific angel investor, investing in and advising more than 50 companies in the UK's startup ecosystem, with a focus on AI, machine learning, and climate tech. Let's get right into the interview. Well, Ben, welcome to AI and You. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Maybe you can go into your background, because I always find these stories fascinating on what led you to an interest in memory and an interest in language. Right, so I got into memory slightly, and language learning, in a slightly roundabout way. I got very into building neural networks to try and predict the result of horse races, because you immediately got me into slightly embarrassing territory. As a teenager, I was really into trying to work out how we could use neural networks to ingest patterns of data in horse racing results, and then what I could tag them with, and how that could predict racing results. Turned out that, at least with me making them, they couldn't really, which I think is more a comment on my ability to use it than necessarily the limitations of technology. But anyway, that got me into the study of neural networks. And from there, I went to study neuroscience, well, experimental psychology, but largely neuroscience at Oxford, where I was, again, looking a lot at neural networks, specifically how to build neural networks that could model the representation of memory in the brain. And I got very into that at a sort of detailed programming level. Then while doing that, I got kind of interested or slightly bemused slash fascinated by the realization that language was so fundamental to how the human brain works. And as a sort of pattern, the way that we spot patterns in language and then acquire the abilities to use language in that way. It's sort of compulsive. And even in the behaviors between parents and children, you see parents moderating their language to be simpler so that children can understand it so that they can take that step up. So it's on, on kind of every level, both the way our brain works and then the way that we interact with each other is kind of designed for language learning. And yet, my experience at school, I'd more or less spent eight years studying languages at school, and really all I thought I'd learned was that I wasn't any good at learning languages. And so I had these two conflicting facts, one that I felt I wasn't good at languages, and the other that I'm a human and my brain is therefore pretty much hardwired for learning languages. And I had to, had to reconcile those two things. And the conclusion I came to, or the, the theory I came to, was that I, I wasn't actually bad at learning languages. 
I was just bad at learning languages the way that I've been taught them. And a kind of a specific insight on that is that acquiring a language, and just to be slightly technical, I'll separate between learning and acquiring because learning means multiple different things. If I want to acquire the ability to speak a language, to get there, the time split is roughly 20% of the time you need to spend learning, learning words, phrases, grammar rules, and about 80% of the time you need to spend practicing, getting good at using that language. And that's kind of intuitively obvious. That's why I can get my A in GCSE French and I still can't speak French. I passed the exam because I learned everything, but I didn't do the 80%, which is the practice. And I think that this kind of resonates with many people, that the courses that they had at school and when they go through on language apps, you, you get through, complete the course, and you still can't speak the language. You're like, what, what happened? <laughs> I did everything I was asked and I still can't do it. And that's because you've only done the 20%. And part of the reason for that is that the 80%, historically, the only way you've been able to get that, two ways, actually. One is through native speaker contact and speaking to people. And the other is, once you're at quite an advanced level, you can watch films. And so if you look around the world, the countries that have a very high level of English as a second language, it's the countries where the TV, the American TV is dubbed, uh, sorry, subtitled, not dubbed. And so if people in that country have to watch Friends with subtitles, they learn to speak English. They learn to understand English. But in order to do that, you normally have to get to quite a high level already. And that doesn't help you with the practice of communication. So still, you need to find some native speakers to practice with. And those are really the thing that are memorized where we've got this learn aspect that helps you learn words and phrases and kanji if you're learning Japanese very quickly. But the really exciting and different bit is around how we give that 80% of the time that is required doing practice. Like there's no shortcut. You can't get around practicing. Your brain just needs to do it. And it's kind of, by analogy, it's like if you've read a book on how to swim, but you've never swum, like, you're not going to be able to do it. You've got to spend some time in the pool. Otherwise, you're not going to get to swim. And so a lot of what we're doing at Memrise, and particularly the application of AI, where we're really excited about it, is in this really intentional practice area of how you can both receptively practice finding videos that are at just the right level to be good practice for you, and then how you can practice having conversation. So this is really interesting to me because, like you, I went through the British high school system, five years of French, two years of German. The French stuck, the German didn't uh, at all. I had some cause to give the French more of a workout when I moved to Canada because you get a reminder every time you pick up a cereal packet. And yet the way that I learned those languages in high school was not at all the way that I learned English, obviously, because that was what I grew up learning and that's, you just absorb it. Now, then in high school, you have English language classes, which attempt to sort of remind you of all the things about the language that the way that they teach you French, like, all right, here's grammar, which I never got into in English. They would drill you on this stuff a lot, participles and intenses and numerous other things. And it never interested me because I was naturally good at that and a good writer. So I didn't see the point. And it wasn't the way that I learned it. So you are pointing out this difference in the way that we learn 
languages that I can make myself understood in French, but I can't listen to a French movie and make any sense out of it. So I haven't had that immersion in it. And it literally is the only way to get that ability mm -hmm. is to practice doing it. You could probably, if you saw the script written down and had enough time to it, you could probably work it oh, out yeah. and translate it. And certainly I, I can with French. But I, I've just never had that practice of listening to the language at full speed. And a lot of practice. Like it is five times as much of that practice as the time spent just learning it. Mm. And so one of the, just to talk to the AI that we use there, so we can take any video content anywhere on the internet, take it from TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, we can then transcribe that using Whisper AI that's just so much more accurate than anything that we've had before. And it's just very good at getting from very colloquial content, getting a really accurate transcript. Then we can use GPT to pull out of that transcript what are the most important words for a learner to learn and the most important chunks of language to learn. So rather than just having a whole list of all the individual words in the transcript, which actually isn't very useful, like if I have, by the way, I don't want to teach the learner by, the, and way, because that doesn't actually get them any closer to knowing what by the way means. But what GPT is very good at is just chunking out. These are probably the right things to learn. So that can do two things. On the one hand, that can make it so if there's a video on French cooking that you want to be able to understand, I can say, well, here are the words and phrases that you need to learn, and then you'll be able to understand that video which is a nice sort of route into learning a language. But kind of more excitingly, I can also, once you've been doing a course and learning some words, even if you only learned 100 words, I can then start recommending videos for you that are French native videos that use the language that you've learned. And I can draw those from TikTok, Instagram, wherever, so that they aren't content that's made to try and be a teaching resource, which is almost inevitably boring. Uh, but I remember speaking to someone who made video content for Pearson for learning English. And I watched some of her, we were interviewing for a videographer, and I watched some of what she'd made, and it was horrendously boring. And I asked her with somewhat trepidation, like, do you enjoy watching this content that you've made? Or do your friends like watching it? And she just laughed and said, no, 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 no of course not. No one, would, no one would have watched this for fun. But if you're a language learner, you're still a person. It's still going to be bored sideways by boring content. And so being able to find for you content that's not only interesting, made for native speakers to entertain them, but is tuned to be just at the right level for you to just about understand, given the words that you've learned, that's the content that your brain needs in order to develop that skill. And it's really, it is, it's a point of practice rather than learn. And this is why, as I was saying earlier, the word learn is a bit tricky. Like when you say, I want to learn French. Actually, most of the time spent learning French is practicing. It's not the studying part of it. And now we have large language models that are occupying so much of our attention, and they're very good at language. That's why they call them large language models. And so what sort of approaches does this lead to? Do those models provide for absorbing new languages because we no longer need to approach language from the point of view of vocabulary and grammar. These models yeah. could slice and dice it from a dozen different angles. 
What are some of those other different ways that we can do that? So I think in terms of the language acquisition, the really exciting thing that is opened up by these large language models is the ability to practice with a native speaker, something that is, behaves in all ways like a native speaker, but is available all the time, can be tuned to be a really patient, helpful, supportive language partner that's always available, never gets bored of you, and is extremely low cost. And so just to talk of the way that we have created that, or first of all, that's important because practice is the thing that you need to acquire a language. But what is what that experience looks like is that we can set it up to be any scenario that we want. So we can say, for example, you're going into a barber's shop and you've got to persuade the hairdresser to give you a Mohican haircut. And the hairdresser doesn't want to do it. And so you can set up this situation, which is kind of quite fun. It's a bit game-like. You've got to try and do something in the language. You can speak into it, so use voice input. Again, things like Whisper AI can turn that into text, put it into the large language model. We prime the large language model with the right instructions so that it knows the role that it's playing and how it should behave. And it knows that in this case, it's reticent about giving you that kind of a haircut. But if you really persuade it and give it good reasons, it'll let you have the Mohican. But if you ever get stuck, you can ask for hints. You hear the language spoken first, but if you're confused by it, you can actually press translate and get a read on it that support with translating it. So it's kind of very similar to the experience of talking in a new language with a native speaker, except without any of the stress. And actually, we did a great study looking at the emotions and stress levels of people when talking to the member versus talking to a tutor and found very, I think, 40% lower stress levels. And that's really important because when you're practicing, you need to have at your fingertips quick recall of everything that you have learned to give you the best chance of being able to practice using it. And one of the worst things for memory recall is stress. So when you're under stress and you're put on the spot, your mind goes blank. You know, we all know that happens. And when you go to practice language and you're suddenly in front of a person and they're there and you've got to talk to them and it's horrendously embarrassing if you can't say anything, your mind goes blank. And that's a terrible practice situation. What you need to practice a language is to have a doting parent who can talk to you really gently, tease the words out of you, who you feel loved and secure with and don't feel that stress. And that is, of course, what we have when we learn our first languages. And that's something that we can, the slight aside, when people learn languages as adults, they often report that they get best at speaking the language when they've had a couple of drinks. <laughs> and that's because it reduces the stress level. Actually, alcohol also impairs your memory, but it reduces your stress first, which means that the effect is net positive. Not suggesting that that's the right way to go about acquiring a language. The Membot lets you do that with, the Membot is what we call our AI language partner. That lets you lower those stress levels without having to resort to alcohol. Well, that leads into some other directions I suppose we could go in. But the one that I'm thinking of at the moment is, what about explanations of words where you're looking for more nuance and detail and depth in understanding a language, like explaining that, yes, you used that word correctly in that context. However, you should also know that it has these additional connotations in French that you might not expect. And in these contexts, it would be obscene. And 
do you have a, a way of getting into those sort of conversations? So that kind of just-in-time knowledge, I think, is it's important for that nuance. It also huge amount of research showing that really that's the best way to explain grammar as well. Mm -hmm. So rather than the way grammar tends to be taught, which is as a rule that you drill, you work out how to morphologically change a word, like adding something on the end or you know, however you do those changes, that is shown repeatedly, that method of learning grammar is shown to be basically uncorrelated with your ability to actually speak the language. You can be very good at grammar tests and be unable to speak the language. You can speak the language and be unable to do the grammar test. What is really powerful for explaining grammar is actually there's an academic called Michael Lewis who wrote that grammar explanations should be partial, provisional, and personal. And what he meant by that was, I'll start with the personal. You can explain grammar in the context of something that someone has just heard. You can say, hey, with that sentence, do you notice that they put an S there or those words were the other way around? This is why. And then you can understand it and be like, okay, I got it. I'll move on. Whereas if you teach the rule in the abstract, whenever you want to express this, you need to change the verb in that form. It's very hard for our minds to get purchased on and we just kind of feel confused. So it has to be personal. It has to be partial in that don't try and explain how it's used everywhere in every situation. Because again, no one will take that on. They don't need it right now. Our minds will just drop it. And provisional, I know that I'm not telling you the whole thing. I will update it later. And I think this is something that we've been testing getting GPT-4 to... GPT-3 didn't do it terribly well. 3.5, a little bit better. 4 is, is starting to get really good at it. To do these very partial, provisional, personal explanations and be that kind of just-in-time, this is what you're seeing right now and allowing you to use that piece of knowledge to understand what is right in front of you. And we're very good at doing that. And then gradually and subconsciously do the generalization. Whereas if we try and teach the generalization, that's quite a hard concept to hold in your mind, which you then need to fit all of the language that you're hearing into. Does that, does that make sense? Yes. What about learning from mistakes? Some of the more memorable experiences in language classes have always been for me when I made a mistake and the teacher said, oh, you accidentally called him a doormat. And, <laughs> and they, like, sure. you remember that. It's a high point in the learning. Can you evaluate pronunciation and can you make that kind of observation? Right now, it's a little bit difficult, partly because the speech-to-text models are taught so well to be good at understanding whatever it is that you're saying. And that's really what they're optimized for. We can see if you don't get good enough to be understood. Also, they're listening to what you're saying and then they're fitting it into the context of the sentence. So probably if you say it to sound a bit too much like doormat, mm. they will probably correct it anyway and work out what it was you were trying to say. Right. I think that this is something that will come and I think that we get such an interesting data set that we're generating through all of these people talking to the bot that we are building a data set that will allow us to train models to do that. But that is still a bit too new as a use case. And I also think it's not the absolute headline. Like the absolute headline, you're right, that those are some of the most memorable moments of language lessons. But in a way, that's a low bar effect. Like the most important experiences for you should be the wealth of practice that you get. Mm. And the real magic moments are when 
you actually talk to a native speaker and are having conversations and they're talking and you're just understanding. Right. And it is, I remember the first time I had that experience in when I was learning Chinese, where I was just sitting opposite someone and she was talking and I could just understand what she was saying. And it was just like magic. And it, that, I think, is the magic moment that really motivates any language learner. And I think that the faster we can get you to that point, the better. And that is something that having this huge amount of target language content filtered to your level so you can watch films that you understand and the ability to practice and be supported in your practicing conversations, those two things together are really a game changer. And actually, I should just mention that we did quite a fun study a couple of weeks ago. We got a bunch of people into the office, a bunch of volunteers, and basically said to them, what language do you want to be learning now? So they all picked languages, basically, that they'd never learned before. Some of them had done some high school French and wanted to be able to actually use it. And we tried them out on, could they order a coffee, have a basic conversation with someone? And they couldn't. And all of them just were like, no way, I I'm, I'm, can't even start. Then gave them some practice time with the member, with watching some videos, learning some vocab. And after like half an hour, come back, have a conversation with a native speaker, and they can do it. They can just do that conversation because it's another thing about language. It kind of relates to that point of partial provisional and personal that even the way we talk about it, we talk about learning a language, but you don't learn a language. It's not just one thing. You can learn to do particular things in a language. And as an example, when I was learning Chinese, I was also, I set up a motorcycle factory to repair old motorcycles and renovate motorcycles and then sell them on. I could talk about parts of motorcycles in Chinese that I didn't know in English. And I could, when I came back to England, I sometimes had to translate my Chinese back into, I'd have Google Translate and I was speaking to it to translate it into English so that I knew what the part was called. But was my Chinese better than my English? Like, obviously not. I couldn't talk about politics in Chinese. It was just, I never did it. So it's very domain specific. And I think that it's rather like if we spoke about cooking, like we speak about language learning, I'd say, hey, Peter, have you learned to cook yet? And you'd be like, oh, no, I'm, I'm learning principles of baking and I've gone on to some basic frying, but I haven't yet actually chopped anything up or made a dish, which is kind of obviously preposterous. You learn to cook by learning to cook one dish. You get that down, you try another one, and gradually after you've cooked a bunch of dishes, you're like, okay, I'll start off by frying an onion. That seems to be a pretty sort of standard generalized thing to do. And you get these general practices across the different dishes that you get. Language learning is just the same. And so what we aim to do is give people these very specific experiences where go in and get a haircut, go and order food, chat someone up at a bar, whatever it is that you want to be able to do, learn the language to be able to do that thing. And then gradually as you stack more and more abilities into your back pocket, you get more and more fluent and you get more happy across more situations. It's kind of like the parallel between narrow artificial intelligence in general, you're teaching these narrow situations, like the ability to order a drink and book a train ticket and so forth. And then at some point, then these all join up so that you're able to do things that you didn't learn. And how yeah. does that experience happen? At what point of progress does that occur? Well, I think you can't stop yourself from doing that. That process of generalization is automatic and subconscious. So you will just see that generalization happening 
kind of automatically. So we don't need to try and do that. With AI, it's a problem that we need to solve. But with the human brain, if you teach people in multiple different situations, they will pick out the generalization without even trying. I guess I have something else related to that, that is something that I haven't yet made my mind up on, but I'd love to explore further, is that a lot of the process of thinking in a human and in our minds is around the direction of attention. And that comes from, if we think of in a language context, if you're at a dinner party and you're trying to hear people talking and follow a conversation, you've got to choose who to attend to and you're dropping out other information, a lot of other information. And those attentional mechanisms are kind of fundamentally different to the language processing systems that an LLM is good at. So an LLM can take in a whole load of text information and from it spot the patterns, predict the next words that are coming. But that's quite different to an attentional mechanism that in the human brain is just moderated by emotions, moderated by feedback systems between different brain areas. And that interests me because, for example, there's one thought around language learning that I often get asked that is, now we're moving in a direction of near-perfect simultaneous translation available through AI. Is learning a language going to become pointless? Like, why would you bother learning if I can just use my phone and it can translate whatever the person's saying and then I can speak back? And so you might say, well, I want to be able to speak in my own voice. Well, AI is going to be able to do that for you pretty quick as well. So I'll be able to speak French in my voice and translate it back. So in that case, why would I even learn a language? Well, my example for that is if I make a machine that does a better job of eating ice cream, are you going to stop doing that? Exactly. I was going to use the example of playing tennis. Like if I make a robot play tennis for you, would you still play tennis? <laughs> like it, it doesn't actually solve the problem. It is the experience of it. And we see that the language learners already overwhelmingly, the reason you learn a language is for a human connection. It's because you've got a partner whose parents speak a different language. It's because you go on holiday somewhere and you want to connect to the people there. Those are the reasons that people actually go and learn a language. And to see the world from another perspective, the way that another group of people view reality. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's the first thing that is crucially important. But then back to that point I was making about having a conversation at a dinner party or in a crowd, I think it's a very much harder problem for my phone to be able to choose which of the voices to listen to, attend only to that stream of language, translate that, and then when I talk back, to speak back to that person. So there's one-to-one dialogue that can be very transactional. I want to buy a bus ticket. You know, if I'm going to Turkey for the weekend, I want to buy a bus ticket when I'm there. Yeah, I might use AI to do that. And that's just a transactional thing. But I can't go to a dinner party in Turkey and hope that AI is going to be able even the, the most sophisticated that we've currently got from where LLMs could get to, that they're not even looking at the problem of attention and how to moderate that in real time. And that, I think, is another step change in functionality that is needed, I think. Mm. I'm not deep in the bowels of OpenAI understanding how they're building this, but from my understanding and from my study of neuroscience back in the day, that seems to be the way I would understand it. But I'd love counter views on that. I wanted to go back to something we were saying earlier when we were talking about how AI could listen to what you were saying and it would 
automatically correct your mispronunciations and mistakes because it's very forgiving and wants to be helpful in the same way that it can ignore spelling errors when you type in. It will just automatically gravitate towards the most likely thing that you meant. And so then at some point you want to actually make it stricter when someone's learning a language. Do you have a dial you can turn on that? We do have a dial we can turn on that. There is a, a strictness dial and we do also, in order to spot the kind of grammar errors, because this is another thing that GPT is good at, is spotting grammar errors. But we want to give it the chance to spot the grammar errors. So we need to not correct them too early, pass them to the LLM, which can then point out the error that you made so that then you can correct it. Right. So yes, we do have a dialogue. So with all of the explosion in capability and AI and language that there's been in the last four months, where do you think we'll be in two years with this? Do you have any crystal ball that tells you, here's where we might be? I think we've got an absolutely incredible opportunity to look incredibly stupid by making predictions. At yes. this point. <laughs> like, where would you I like to it, be? Well, I think maybe just looking back a bit. So we started building on GPT and seeing that this was possible two and a half years ago or believing it was possible. First six months or so, we couldn't get it to work well enough. But then we, what, a, a year and a half ago, we realized that it was at a point where we could do it. It took quite a lot of prompt engineering in those days, those halcyon days of 18 months ago. <laughs> it took a lot more prompt engineering to get a really good result out of it. But it was possible and we could build that. And we were completely blown away by the capabilities of GPT at that point to have these conversations. But when we released it middle of last year, it was funny watching people use it. Their initial thought was they thought it was a chatbot, like other chatbots that had a finite number of answers. And they so thought that, that they didn't even test the boundaries. And we had to put in a lot of UI to encourage people like, no, you really can't say anything to it. And it really will respond. And they'd be like, wait, wait hold on, this doesn't make sense. And it actually, curiously, was difficult to get people really excited about it for that reason. Mm. And then ChatGPT came out, which honestly, when you know, in December, when I first used ChatGPT, my thought was, oh, crap, we've just spent a year and a half putting a conversational interface on GPT, and now OpenAI have gone and done the same thing for us. <laughs> Damn it. But it didn't seem a step change better in terms of what you could get out of it by writing good prompts. I think that was my first, my initial response to it. I think on further use of it, it can give much better responses and it is much easier to use, which is probably what's there. But it wasn't clear to me that chat GPT was an explosive step change better than GPT-3 that we were using already. In terms, for me, the wonder point was GPT-3, not chat GPT. And then GPT-4, I also have found, now with a more nuanced view, yeah, it's another big step change better. But I think where that takes us to is your question. I think we're getting incredibly good at doing tasks that require judgment, require access to a huge area of knowledge or corpus of knowledge. That I'm fascinated to see how that's going to change those industries. You know, the British legal system is predicated on the idea of a barrister on either side who makes arguments both ways and then a judge in the middle who says who's made the best argument. And the 
obvious criticism of that is that it really comes down to who's got the best lawyer. And uh, contrast that with a situation where we can feed in all the relevant casework to GPT-4 or another LLM and ask it to make the case on each side and then ask it to make the judgment. And that is an unbiased system that can be potentially better than, it can make the better case than the best lawyers around. But anyway, even if it's not better than the very best lawyer, it is at least consistent on both sides. And so the chances of getting to a fair result may be better. So I'm kind of fascinated to see how that works. And by the way, that idea of getting GPT to make the opposite cases is something that we had to do when making the bot. Because for example, in my example of earlier, where we're asking you to persuade the bot to let you have a Mohican haircut, we have to judge when you have been successful or not. And you can't do it by a string match. You can't just say, has the bot said X, Y, Z? Because it has to be from reading the sense of the conversation. So we started off by just asking GPT, has this goal, here's the goal criteria, has it been met? Yes or no? And it was okay at it, but it was a bit hit and miss. So then we did exactly what I described in the legal case. We said, make the case that it has been met, make the case that it hasn't been met, now make the judgment over which one is right. And that made it basically flawless. And so sort of forcing it to show its workings and do the thinking, which, by the way, is how you'd ask a human to do it anyway, is like, think it through in steps. Don't just make a snap judgment. Think it through logically, reason it out, break it down into chunks. By doing it that way, it gets very much better results. So let me see if I've got this straight, how that works, because that sounds fascinating. You take the user's argument, and then you ask it to evaluate, have they made the case? And then you ask it to evaluate, have they not made the case? Or So not quite. So the conversation between the bot and the user mm-hmm. goes back and forth with the user saying, hey, give me a Mohican, I need it, because otherwise I'm going to be thrown out of my punk society. And then, And eventually the bot will say, yeah, okay, I'll let you do it. But the bot might not say, yes, you can have a Mohican. It might say, all right, then, since it's so important to you, come on, I'll do it. We have, in order to know when the conversation is successfully concluded, we have to be able to judge from a transcript, has this been successfully concluded? If the goal criteria is the user has persuaded the bot to give him a Mohican haircut, mm-hmm. has that criteria been met? And if you ask it just straight off the bat, if you ask GPT to judge the transcript, it's quite good at it, but not good enough. It has a kind of 20, 25% failure rate, uh, which is way too high for a consumer product. So the users would constantly be being told, you didn't do it. And they'd be like, but I did 25% of the time. So that was where for the judging part, so it isn't for the bot itself saying, have you made a good enough case? It's to evaluate the transcript. So you have the bot evaluate the transcript and then with three operations, make the case from the transcript that the user was successful, make the case that they weren't, and then judge which one of those arguments is better. Is that it? Yeah, you can actually do it in one prompt. So you put the transcript at the top and mm-hmm. with some examples of making the judgment, and then you say the bits to fit. So you have multiple transcript examples, and at the bottom of each transcript example, you have make the case that this is the goal criteria, make the case it has been met. Mm-hmm. And in the examples, you write out a case for why it's been met. Make the case it hasn't been met. And in the examples, you write out cases it hasn't been met. Make the judgment. 
and do the judgment. Mm. Then when we're having a live conversation, you append the transcript of the current conversation to the end of that, and then it will fill in those three fields in one response. So GPT will come back saying, given that transcript, here is the case that it has been made, here is the case it hasn't been met, and there is the answer. Yeah, clever. Have you found that the last several months have adjusted people's expectations for what a chatbot could do so that they're no longer as timid or expecting it to be limited? Absolutely. ChatGPT has changed all of that. People now understand what it can do. So the same people coming back to the same product are now like, oh, you can talk to it about anything, which wasn't obvious to them before and now is. So yeah, I think that that is now in the popular knowledge. Wow. Well, uh, as we start to wind things up here, what are you working on as the next innovation? So I think there are the, within the chatbot, there's ways to make it a lot more engaging and just consistently looking for ways to make kind of the gameplay of the conversation more fun. How we create that tension. You know, if you have a chat where you just have to go in and order a coffee and you order the coffee and you get a coffee, that's no fun. Trying to find ways to create that kind of tension so it's a bit entertaining, there's a bit of a challenge, all of that, which is a lot more in the user experience realm than straight in the technology realm. So we're definitely integrating all of the upgrades as they come because they can make incremental improvements. But really the big wins now are in how you create that experience rather than just in the technology itself. Then we've got for the pipelines that we're creating for finding great media content that is just matched to your level, that is another big area of application of these AI tools because they allow us to do so much more quantity of film that we can transcribe, that we can match to your level. We can judge it in a so much more nuanced way to make sure it matches your interests and so on. So that is a kind of big area, an area that I think is going to be ultimately more exciting perhaps than the bot itself. So I think the bot is has a huge wow factor to people right now but back to that kind of 80% of time spent doing intentional practice, that is probably not split equally between receptive practice and conversation practice. The receptive practice is probably mm. a larger chunk of that. And so the more content we can get you that is engaging for you, that is matched right to your level and that you can enjoy watching and processing, right. the more successful your language learning journey is going to be. Right. And because if you're learning Japanese, your goal is not to converse with a Japanese bot, but to watch anime in its native form, for instance. Right. It, highly likely. And likewise, if you're learning Korean, you're probably listening to K-pop and watching Korean soaps. Yes. Yes. My family is watching Korean soaps, but they are dubbed in this case or subtitled. So they would be a customer. Subtitled is fine. Yes. <laughs> wow. So where should people go to find out more about what you're doing if you go to memorize.com or if you go to the App Store or Google Play and you can download it, and you'll find that we, we, the way we talk about these three stages in the language acquisition journey is learn, immerse, communicate. And immerse and communicate are that kind of 80% practice time. And you'll see on the app, those are three different tabs. On the website, there are three tabs down the side. And you can go in there, you find sets of words that you want to learn, but you can also start by just finding videos that you want to watch 
and then learn the vocab that you need to understand those videos. So you can kind of be led by a course-first approach, or you can be led by interest-first, just find videos that you want to watch, or you can go straight to the conversations and start with them. All right. Well, thank you very much, Ben Whiteley, for coming on AI and You. Thanks so much for having me. That's the end of the interview. Amazing how much of what we do is shaped by language and can be fundamentally reinvented by large language models, including, in this case, learning another language. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, the Washington Post analyzed the websites that some large language models were trained on to glean some insight into their heritage. That list is what Google calls its C4 dataset. Maybe because it's like plastic explosive in the wrong hands. 15 million websites that trained Facebook's Llama, among other models. OpenAI hasn't said what sites it trained ChatGPT on. They're looking less and less open as time goes by. The biggest sites in the set were Wikipedia, Google Patents, Scribd.com, a subscription-only digital library, and BOK.org, a market for pirated ebooks that has since been seized by the U.S. Department of Justice. The biggest category of sites was business and industrial, like investment and financial sites like Patreon and Kickstarter, which may be where models learn some of their marketing chops from. Of course, there were a lot of news sites, and also religious sites. The second largest category was technology, including blogging platforms like Medium. The post went into great detail analyzing the sites and their content, and I'd suggest reading that article. There's a link to it in the show transcript. There's a lot that can be said, and which they do say, about how suitable some of that data was. For instance, the post found some conspiracy and white supremacist sites in the list, also some pornographic sites, and many mentions of the word swastika, which was supposed to be banned. Now, I wouldn't infer anything about the politics of the Googlers who created this list. Remember, there's 15 million sites on it. They weren't picked individually. That had to be done by an algorithm of some kind, and a certain defect rate is inevitable. Whether these examples constitute an acceptable defect rate is where the debate should lie. Next week, my guest will be Dorian Seltz, calling from Zurich, where he is co-founder and CEO of Squiro, a company helping businesses enhance their decision-making with AI. Dorian will be helping us understand how generative AI and large language models can be best used within business today. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.